Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello and welcome back to the second edition of Smart People Podcast. I am Chris Stemp and alongside me I have John Rojas. Going on everybody, thanks for coming back and listening to our second episode of Smart People Podcast. Today on the podcast we actually have uh, world-renowned sports psychiatrist Michael Larden and feel pretty lucky to have him on today because I found out that other companies and people pay him a lot of money to answer the same questions that we're going to ask him. So it's a good interview that we have uh, today. I don't quite know how we came across him, but it's really interesting. He talks about your zone, finding your zone. He wrote a book called Finding Your Zone, 10 Core Lessons for Peak Performance in Sports and Life. And what he's referring to in that is is kind of if you're an athlete or an artist or a musician, a lot of times you get lost in your art, what you're doing, if you're, if you're hitting a baseball, if you're drawing a picture, and everything around you kind of goes away. Many of us have experienced it at some point in our lives, and it's very peaceful. I kind of think of it as a meditative state almost, and I would like to figure out a way to get there more often, whether it be at work or at home or out on the golf course. It's a, it's a calming feeling. So came across this guy, and, and that's kind of what he talks about the most in his work. Uh, what do you think about the zone, Mr. Rojas? Well, I actually got a chance to check out some of his book. While on the golf course with you the other day, I actually you know closed my eyes, pictured myself hitting a drive straight. As you know, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> but saw myself do it and then actually got up there and hit it somewhat straight, which you know is a rare occurrence for me. So... I'm a complete believer as well. Highly recommend his book to, to all our listeners. I really enjoyed sitting down and interviewing him. 
Yeah, so just to give everybody a little bit of a background on Dr. Larden, he did his undergraduate work at Stanford University, where he wrote his research paper on mental visualization and peak performance. So he's been interested in it ever since then. He went on to medical school at the University of Texas, and now he is an associate clinical professor at the University of California at San Diego School of Medicine. You know, he also did a little bit of work on lucid dreaming, which is something that I found interesting ever since I've had my first lucid dream, which is where you're dreaming and you know that you're in a dream state and you can control it. Have you ever had anything similar to this? Yeah, I actually used to experience this phenomenon as a, as a child. I, when I would go to bed, I would sit there and think about what I wanted to dream that night. And then when I was actually in the dream, I almost had the ability to control the dream with what I remember as being a television remote control. And I would change the channels and my dreams would change. And, you know, it was a bizarre experience for me. And I'd really never read up too much on it. And it's, uh, I found it very interesting that, it, that it's actually in the book, In the Zone. Yeah, and uh, one other thing for all the golf listeners out there, Dr. Larden caddied for his brother Brad in Q School, which is the qualifying school of the PGA Tour, and their story was put together in a book called A Long Walk Spoiled. They were the basis for it. It's a good golf classic, something else I found interesting about Dr. Larden. So without further ado, uh, we give you the interview. Today on the podcast, we would like to welcome world-renowned sports psychiatrist and author of the book, Finding Your Zone, Dr. Michael Larden. Dr. Larden, thank you very much for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Dr. Larden, this is, uh, this is John. Um, so listeners might not be aware of what a sports psychiatrist does. Uh, can you briefly explain what you do on a day-to-day basis Sure. Well, I mean, my practice, as you mentioned, is mostly focused with with athletes. I do a lot of work with Olympic athletes, some work with NFL and PGA and baseball. But but basically what a sports psychiatrist does um, is we try to move you along what we call the mental health curve. And uh, on one end of the curve is when you're having your best day and and, uh, there's a phenomenon uh, in sports and, in, and also in life called being in the zone or in a flow state when everything is, is rocking, everything's hitting on all cylinders. It doesn't always have to be, you know, shooting free throws. It can be, uh, you know, teaching your class. And so in the early 90s, um, when I was at UCSD after my residency, I did a fellowship and I teamed with a man, Dr. John Polich, at Scripps Research Institute, and we did a lot of brainwave studies really looking at this phenomenon of, of when people get in the zone, if it's real. And, uh, and basically, I've spent my entire life, uh, you know, helping people move in that direction and researching it and trying to understand it. How do you help these athletes get into um, what you define as the zone? Well, I mean, paradoxically, the, the, the zone or when you're doing really well is when you're kind of getting out of your own way. I'm probably a bit older than you guys, but when I was young, there was a, a TV program called Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins, and it always would start with a mongoose and a cobra snake, and that cobra would go to 
strike the mongoose, and the mongoose uh, is uh, quicker than the cobra, and the mongoose would always, you know, nab the cobra at the neck. And the idea there is that, you know, in the animal kingdom, the, the animals work at almost this automated reflexive level. And when we are kind of operating at that more automated reflexive level and we sort of get our thinking out of the way or sometimes our ego out of the way, that's when we really perform our best. So when I'm working with an individual athlete, it's really not a prescription for everyone. It depends on that athlete. Uh, the golfer Rich Beam, somebody I've worked with for many, many years and uh, uh, some years ago, he beat Tiger Woods down the stretch to win the PGA Championship. And when he gets hot, we just stay out of Beamer's way. <laughs> the things he struggles with are not are not going low. He struggles with more, you know, fighting uh, when uh, he has some adversity out there in and hanging tough. Where some athletes, it's the converse. You know, they they always are great fighting, but you know, as soon as their their name on the leaderboard gets up there and they're ten under, twelve under, uh, then they get a little nervous and then they back up. But but there's even a broader context. Not only what happens in the domain or the microcosm of the sport or or whatever particular expertise they may have, but how their general life affects that. I mean, everything from, uh, you know, don't cheat on your wife to let's not have 20 beers the night before. Jack Nicklaus really used to talk about before the major championships, he would really make sure everything in his personal life was in order. So, you know, he could settle in and be, you know, fully focused and fully present. Uh, during the big events. So, I mean, we look at it from all angles, from uh, a microscopic angle to, you know, what's happening in the moment when, uh, you know, the field goal kicker has to kick uh, in front of 80,000 people to, uh, you know, what's going on in his life around it that allows him to be loose and allows him to, to just do it. Now, have you worked with any of those uh, NFL field goal kickers? I have. Nate Kading is uh, somebody I've worked with for years. He's on the Chargers, and uh, he's a pleasure to work with. He's a very, very nice young man, and uh, he's had a little bit of adversity, as uh, uh, many, many of you know, if you follow San Diego football. The New York Times did a story on, on Nate earlier this year and interviewed me a little bit about what we do and uh, try to keep him centered. Very cool. Yeah, because uh, I was I was thinking about you know what athletes you might work with, and you know you mentioned Rich Beam. I, I think working with those uh, field goal kickers would be uh, very interesting because of the fact that is you know, the most high pressure position in football, and they always you know hinge a win or loss off those field goal kickers. Sure, sure, and I think a lot of it is too with athletes how to deal with the media and how to deal with your expectations. And what often happens is, you know, when you're young and you're coming up and your expectations are more modest, it's easier. But then if you become a very high-profile athlete, you know, and you, you, it's, it's human tendency to, you know, worry about what other people perceive. Unfortunately, that's a very toxic thing. So the, the, really the, the best athletes are really just focused on their process uh, I remember when I was uh, young in college, uh, in 1981, my lab partner was Eric Hyden, who uh, had just won five gold medals in the 1980 Olympics. And 
he was offered a million dollars to be on the uh, cornflakes box, and he turned it down. And and you know, now Eric's reasons were were several fold, but the point is. I think one of the reasons that he's been historically one one of the greatest athletes, certainly in the Olympics, um, is that he really doesn't care so much about what other people think. A very funny story that uh, that's true is the night before he was about to win the fifth individual gold medal, Time magazine wanted to do a shoot and have him on the cover. And they asked him to pose with the five gold medals, and they said it would go to print that night. And Eric, and they, are you comfortable posing with five gold medals even though you, you haven't uh, had the fifth race? And Eric said, well, I really don't care. He goes, I hope, I hope for your sake that I win tomorrow. I'll all look really silly. <laughs> that's actually that's a great point that, um, that I hadn't really thought about. Do you do you notice that the the athletes you work with that kind of operate on the highest level are they as concerned with what other people think as I want to say as the rest of us? I mean, even I know when I first started working in the professional world and everything, I was really worried of you know about pleasing my boss and the other people in the company. And I think it took me a while to realize if I just kind of concentrate on what needs to be done, then uh, I'll I'll be fine. Well, if we were to think about that we only had, let's say, arbitrarily, 100 energy marbles for the day, right? The, the name of the game is to allocate that energy uh, most efficiently to get you the most production. So if you take that energy and it's allocated about worrying about what other people think or worrying if you can make a particular number, uh, you burn energy unnecessarily. But if you stay, as you say, in your job, just focused on what you need to do, uh, doing your best with it, that will end up giving you the best result. So that takes a lot of discipline to understand that. And, and in time, it takes wisdom. You know, as you get older, you, you, you understand that more. With the athletes that I work with, I mean, the phenomenon is, you know, they're regular people. Then all of a sudden they hit the big time and then they make a lot of money. And, you know, everybody treats them different. And, uh, you know, there are not a lot of people giving them straight feedback. And so it's easy to get lost. It's easy to get lost out there. You know, we see that, uh, you know, with Tiger's fall from grace this last year. You know, he has a very insular group around him. And unfortunately, no one, you know, gave him a little wisdom. You know, he needed, he needed a, uh, obviously needed somebody, you know, whether, whether it was a family friend, his coach, his caddy, what have you, to say, hey, you know, what are you doing? You're, you're going to destroy your life. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Tiger's paid a tremendous price emotionally for his behaviors. Yeah, I think we're all kind of hoping, uh, hoping that he gets it all figured out. Everybody likes watching him on Sunday. Yeah, but it really does show you. It it speaks to the point of, you know, Tiger is the same player he's always been, same gifts. What's different? You know, his emotional pain, right? His life surrounding golf. Now, if you have two kids and, you know, you get divorced and your wife lives in Sweden, you live in America, you don't get to see your kids, that would be uh, very, very difficult. So what it shows you is, you know, Tiger is 63rd, I believe, on the PGA money list this year. And, you know, this is somebody who's won the Varden Trophy, which is the lowest scoring average eight times. So from Tiger, for him to suddenly be number 63 on the money list is, is really unheard of. 
um, it's a you know a fall fall from grace. Right. Another athlete that I work with for many many years is David Duval, and uh, what another wonderful guy. You know, after he reached number one in the world, and uh, you know had huge contracts with Nike and this and that, he stopped having fun out there, and um, and that's what happens in sports. Is you know how do you maintain having fun and and not get caught up in the in in all the drama and the business side of it, and in and whether it's the sport you know a sport sport or the sport of life. Uh, or even you take it to your job. I mean, if you can have fun with your work, then you're going to do your best. I wanted to ask you, because, you know, I think it, it affects a lot of people and affected me on a personal level, is talk about a, a lot about following your heart and your passion and how by doing so um, it will give you pure motivation. I really like that idea, and I was hoping you could give some advice maybe on how you think people – uh, kind of open up their their minds to allow themselves to to follow that passion rather than say go the safe route of getting you know a nine to five job and a and a solid paycheck even though you might not really be happy with what you're doing. Well, you know, I mean, one way to look at it is uh, you know you have one life, at least one that we know, and you don't know when. Uh, you know, I was just recently in Scotland with my brother playing golf at St Andrews and. Uh, uh, joining us on the trip was a very nice man, a, a doctor, a scratch golfer, 49 years old and uh, in great shape. And he came home and felt a little weak on the stair climber. And the next thing you know, he has a very serious uh, uh, cancer called uh, le- leukemia. So, you know, life's short and, and, and you're, it's very precious. And, uh, you know, we, we, of course, have fears where we need to make a living. But at the same time, most of us, you know, also have things that uh, we're passionate about that we enjoy, and uh, you know, you have to you have to be practical at times. But at the same time, if you don't pay attention to what you really like, uh, you may end up uh, with many material things. But uh, you'll end up, you know, sort of having an empty life. You know, I mean, I think people do best when when they get really turned on by something. You know, the kid that started Facebook at Harvard, right? So, you know, I think if there's any lesson, you know, when we sit with people and when I'm trying to help them, it's really, you know, one of the questions is, is, you know, what are the things that that float your boat? You know, what, what do you really enjoy? And that's normally a good place to go or try to integrate that into your life. I think that leads into one of the questions that I had. You had written about finding balance, and the question that I had was, do you find that people can truly find balance while working you know, 40 to 80 hours a week in these jobs? And then if so, what are some of the key areas to focus on for success in, in finding that balance? Well, one question is, you know, if, if you're having fun, it's not always work. So, like, for me, and I feel very fortunate – you know, I, I my whole professional career is just an extension of what I've always loved to do. You know, sports and psychiatry, psychology, you know, helping people. So in a way, I feel like I'm in school my whole life and, you know, now they pay me. Um, um, but, but let's say, for example, I, I gave a talk to a, a business group in L.A. a few months back, large financial company that, you know, uh, they manage people's money. Um, 
and and you know that job can be dry and uh so the really the question is how do you have fun in the job and and I was brought in to speak to the uh executive team and the sales force and 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 really help them brainstorm and you know how do you create in your environment okay you have a job but how do you all have fun doing that when we create generally we have fun even if it's maybe not something you know, right up our alley, but uh, there's something about creation in and of itself, uh, being creative, that uh, I think people inherently enjoy. So that's the trick, and you can sometimes, you could be a mailman, but, you know, maybe you could have fun because you're creative and you, you know the people on your route, and, you know, there's always some way to enhance something. Well, I want to I want to switch gears here real quick. Maybe it'll be a little teaser uh, for our listeners on about your book. I found one of the most interesting um, chapters is you talk about the dream and using your dreams, and you mean actual dreams when you go to sleep at night, using them as a tool in solving problems, letting your mind get out of the way. I've always kind of been fascinated with the idea of interpreting interpreting dreams and things like that. So I was hoping you might be able to just talk about it a little bit, give people an idea of, of what you think about dreams and how that might help you. Well, um, I mean, I was very fortunate when when I was in college, I was a TA, a teaching assistant for a very famous uh, doctor called Stephen LaBerge. And Stephen LaBerge is the world's leading expert in what's called lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming is when you're dreaming and you actually are aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. So in the Stanford Sleep Lab, uh, Dr. LaBerge would uh, help people get into a lucid dreaming state. And while they were in REM sleep, uh, there would be a way that the uh, patient would be able to communicate through eye beats uh, to the doctor that he was in fact, or she was in fact aware that they were in the dream. And then they would be guided to you know, visiting, uh, you know, a relative, traveling to some other geographic location. And it's a fascinating thing. Now, lucid dreams have been reported for centuries and centuries, and most of us in Western culture may have one or two in our life, very rare, and we don't really pay any attention to the world of dreams. Conversely, the Hopi Indians, uh, Native American culture, uh, their their life their regular life was really centered around their their dream life in many respects and what happened in their unconscious minds even the collective unconscious meaning not only one individual but all the individuals they would talk about in the day and so the dreams became more integrated into their experience now to bring that home here to the 21st century you know what's that mean to you and I well, most of us wake up, we have a really wild dream, and we go, wow, what was that? And then we get on in our day, and we can only remember, you know, fragments. But in the dream, in, in things like Dr. LaBerge, what they'll teach you to do is you have a journal by your bed. When you wake up in the morning, uh, the first thing you do if you had a powerful dream is you write it down because the decay is very quick, and you need to write it down right there. The other thing is you can give yourself a suggestion before you go to bed, and I'm a big proponent of having a journal, you know, for thoughts, ideas, and things like that. You know, like tonight I'd really like to dream a little bit about, you know, what do I want to do in life or, what, you know, how could I solve this problem? 
Now, that may not always work out, but sometimes you will get some very interesting information. And then there's some techniques to actually get in lucid dreaming. That's a little bit trickier, and it's just, you know, the simple part of it, as I explain a little bit of it in the book, but, you know, you could always Google Dr. LaBerge or lucid dreaming, and, and he gives seminars. But our cycles, our sleep cycles run in 90-minute cycles, and if you can set your alarm for 90 minutes in, you will often wake up right from REM. If you wake up from REM and then you have a suggestion, okay, I want to go think about this or go there, then you'll, then you'll go back directly to REM and you'll often, uh, that will result in a lucid dream. And the world of dreaming is, you know, uh, is one of the vehicles to our unconscious mind. And, you know, I always say we're the noisiest passenger of our own ship, meaning that our unconscious mind really drives our behaviors, even though we may think different. Well, this is, this is all very interesting stuff. And uh, our listeners can find out more in your book, Finding Your Zone, 10 Core Lessons for Achieving Peak Performance in Sports and Life. Dr. Larden, on behalf of Chris and myself, we really appreciate you taking the time out to, uh, to talk to us. Again, I found it very informative and hope our listeners do as well. They can find your book on Amazon.com or at a local bookstore. The book name again is Finding Your Zone by Dr. Michael Larden. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Uh, as we mentioned before, Dr. Larden's book can be found on Amazon. It's called Finding Your Zone, 10 Core Lessons for Achieving Peak Performance in Sports and Life. As always, I wanted to thank the outdoors for providing music for the podcast. Their website is theoutdoorsmusic.com, and you can also follow them on Twitter at The Outdoors Band. Please tune in next week when we have on Rob Spiewak from the Mike O'Meara Show podcast, which was rated by iTunes as one of the top podcasts of 2010. Thanks for tuning in. Tell all your friends, and we will see you in a few days. Yeah, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and uh, leave us leave us a rating. Leave us a positive rating, please. Yeah, we're begging. It's gotten bad. <laughs>